With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. And welcome to the Inclusive Class Podcast, where it's our goal to explore the promise and practice of inclusive education. Through our interviews and discussions, we hope to provide you with information and resources that will help you support the education of your child or student with special needs. I'm Nicole Eredix, and I'm one of your hosts for the show. I'm a parent and inclusion teacher and creator of the online resource for parents and teachers, theinclusiveclass.com. And joining me here on the Inclusive Class this morning is my co-host, Terry Morrow. Hi, Terry. Good morning, Nicole, and welcome to all our listeners. I am Terry Morrow. I'm the author of 50 Ways to Support Your Child's Special Education, and I write about special needs for about.com at specialchildren.about.com. I'd like to mention to anyone out there listening to us live that we're not taking phone calls, but the chat room will be open. If you'd like to stop in and suggest a question, I'll try to work it in if we have time. Uh, I don't know about you, Nicole, but I've been having a very quiet week, and it's been so nice mm-hmm. after all the uproar of graduation and graduation parties and, you know, the mm-hmm. transition from school into nothing and then nothing into the next thing. So mm-hmm. this week, you know, my son's been working every day. My daughter's been doing her online college class and volunteering at the library. I've been getting some work done. It's been extremely peaceful. How uh, mm-hmm. how has your week been? Are you free of guests now? <laughs> Uh, just a couple days out, yep. We had them for a full week, and we did the, uh, you know, Southern California, as I mentioned last week, uh, landmark tour. <laughs> <laughs> Introduced them to all the uh, things that were happening here. Weather was beautiful, very hot, and then all of a sudden they leave, and the clouds come in, and we have big thunderstorms and lightning last night, so they, they hit it at a good time. So as we were talking about earlier, you know, yeah. they were allowed to... Uh, the real Southern California. <laughs> you had the fantasy, and now the you fantasy. have the reality. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, no, everything's been going great. Thank you. Like I said, very quiet on this end, so it's nice. It's a little reprieve before school starts up for us in uh, three weeks, I think. Incredibly oh early. Gosh, we start awful. real, real late out here, you know, yeah. first week in September. Usually after Labor Day we start. Yeah. And, uh, no. It always amazes me when I hear about people starting in August. I know. I don't. I don't know why they do that because I would think that the cost of the air conditioning alone would oh, offset you would any air benefit. conditioning. You have air conditioning <laughs> in your school. Maybe that's yes. why we start so late because we don't. <laughs> but they still send the kids outside for recess and lunch, and then they make oh, them geez. do the mile run. And I don't know. So, <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it's been nice not thinking about school. And um, actually, yes. this week I've been thinking a lot about our uh, show today because. Our interview last week with Dr. Nancy Rappaport was wonderful. It was outstanding. Yes. So much wonderful information for um, for parents and teachers. So I am uh, looking forward to today, which is the second part in our two-part series that we're having uh, that talks about children with very challenging behavior, such as aggression and violence, and how parents and teachers can 
work together to understand and teach children that uh, present with that behavior. And we have um, uh, Dr. Rappaport's co-author for the book The Behavior Code that we mentioned last week. We have Jessica Minahan with us today, and she's going to address some more issues around um, challenging students and talk to us about some more strategies and ways to help them. And I would like to introduce her to our audience. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. I just wanted to give the audience a bit of background um, about you before we move on to our questions. Uh, Jessica is a board-certified behavior analyst and a special educator. And as I mentioned, she's the co-author of The Behavior Code. And she currently works in the public school system as a district-wide behavior analyst. So that's a little bit about where Jessica is coming from. Anything more to add to that, or is that... Um, no, that was pretty good. Thumbs it up. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. Well, let's uh, let's get started then. Let's dive in because, as I mentioned um, earlier, so many great tips and, and all very practical and relevant and, and very interesting for our audience to hear. So uh, the first question I wanted to ask was, you know, whether... Uh, somebody is in fourth grade or an adult, a teenager, how is our behavior shaped by our emotional drives? How does it all, how is it all intertwined and affect um, what we're doing? Yeah, I think there's a normal range for all of us to have our behavior um, represent what we're feeling. And most of us have enough self-regulation that we don't exhibit a lot of inappropriate behavior. So, for example, if we're in line at Dunkin' Donuts and someone bumps us from behind, most Mm -hmm. of us will think in our head, oh, what a jerk, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. that was terrible. But we'll regulate and not sort of exhibit that. So we'll have feelings, we'll feel frustrated, um, but we won't exhibit that through inappropriate behavior because we have um, a good amount of self-regulation. Um, So that's normal to have an emotion um, sort of affect your behavior. But what prevents us from doing that is called self-regulation. And for the kids that we're talking about in the book, um, that's where one of the biggest skill deficits is, is um, self-regulation. And how do they stop themselves before blowing over? And um, a lot of our kids will actually... really look back on a behavior incident with remorse and say, oh, I know I should have, I should have, and they have the the script, I I should have used my words, I should have done this, yeah. but in the moment they can't, and that's because right. the emotion took over. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we talk about with kids and families and when we develop behavior plans to help kids, self-regulation is a huge part. Well, and really increases your awareness on why things are happening the way they are, to know, you know, that that aspect of it, it that's where it's coming from. For the exactly, most yes. And right. that's why um, our subtitle, we, we titled the book Understanding and Teaching, and we put understanding first yeah. because I think um, teachers sort of see behavior um, you can make an assumption if you don't mm-hmm. understand that it's coming from an emotional dysregulation sort of point of view. For example, anxiety mm-hmm. is very hidden disability. You can't, 
you know, anxiety looks different on all kids, but it can look like oppositional behavior. The student can swear at you or tell you, I'm not doing that, which is super frustrating. And it looks purposeful. It looks, Mm -hmm. um, I hear the word manipulative a lot from teachers when they're describing a kid. Um, But what's hidden and underneath is this emotional um, base. And so, you know, one of the first things we do when we consult to students is explain that how anxiety affects your learning, how anxiety affects your working memory. Um, It it severely impairs your working memory. Mm -hmm. So in the moment, you can't really use your strategies um, as well. Um, So, yeah, thank you for that question because it absolutely, that's a huge part, is that um, teachers teachers need to understand where it's coming from, and that does help Mm -hmm. um, the whole dynamic. Oh, I think yeah. that's one of the most important aspects to, um, to teaching is trying to understand or, you know, be, just basically looking at a student and saying, okay, well, where is this coming from and why? And then how do I deal with it? Exactly. Rather than just, you know, reacting from a checklist of, you know, intervention strategies and consequences that you have in your mind and uh, and just randomly, you know, not randomly, but just picking one out of your head and using it. So. No, that's a great point. Um, right. Now, in your book, you write about a misunderstanding with Hannah, who is a kindergarten girl that pushes another student off a beanbag. And the point that you make is that often we make wrong assumptions about children's behavior, and that effectively prevents us from addressing the problem. What can we do differently to help children with this kind of behavior? Well, that's um, a great follow-up question because um, on the surface, and teachers have, you know, 20-something kids in their classroom, they are multitasking, like, to the max every second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you witness something like that. Parents do this, too. You witness something like that where one kid pushes another kid. And um, our immediate assumption and the most logical assumption would be she was pushing the other girl to get a turn on the beanbag or get her off yeah. the beanbag so she could sit. And um, and then what the teacher will do is she makes that quick assumption, and then she'll make an intervention based on that. Oh, you know what? You just lost the privilege of the beanbag because you didn't ask nicely. Or say, next time you have to wait before you get the beanbag. Right. And the problem is with the kids we talk about in our book, the surface behavior um, is a little deceiving. And instincts, which teachers run on, you know, a lot, yep. <laughs> um, don't always help us because yeah. so say that student had a social deficit, like say the student had Asperger's syndrome or had a nonverbal language disability, and they pushed the student off the beanbag to say hi, to interact. Mm-hmm. Now the response of the teacher to, say, telling them how to take turns isn't helpful because she missed the reason. Um, right the student pushed her, and whereas the appropriate response would say, oh, next time you can shake her hand, you can say hi. Um, so that's a really huge problem is is there's a misperception um, of why the student um, did what they did because the kids we, and the kids we chose to talk about um, in the book are, are notorious for this, is that yeah. their behavior doesn't match what the real intent was. Um, so the so the problem is teachers are using interventions that 
um, are ineffective, which mm-hmm. which is frustrating. Um, and that leads me. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so what we try to do is sort of talk about. Um, you know, we have a chapter. Each one chapter is on kids with anxiety, which is really um, it's a really tough sort of group of anxiety-related behaviors is, is tough to understand, so we talk a lot about that. And then kids with pretty significant oppositional behavior. We talk about kids who are withdrawn behavior, like including kids with depression. Um, a lot of their behavior is counterintuitive also. And um, in the last chapter is kids with sexualized behavior. And all those kids, the behavior can be very counterintuitive, which and where teachers very um, thoughtful, hardworking teachers are are um, using interventions that don't quite reduce the behavior and hit the target. So um, that's why we chose the kids to talk about that we did, just for this very reason. And and they highlight those those behaviors that teachers do see and, and don't understand. So that's that's great that you're hitting those those uh, you know um, examples because then yeah. it becomes practical and, and teachers can relate to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, back to, you know, sort of, well, leading off of that that uh, response and last question, talking about appropriate interventions, um, one of the ways, I know that, you know, I've done this too, and, and as a parent even, uh, one of the ways that we sometimes deal with challenging behavior is to remove the child from the situation that they're in, you know, and give them what we call a timeout. Now, why mm-hmm. is a timeout you know, basically not um, appropriate or not all that it's cracked up to be. Yeah, timeouts don't always work, and they're used a lot because they're sort of a, it's a benign consequence. You know, adults sort of feel comfortable with it. You know, it's not a huge punitive um, consequence. But the the group of kids that... um, it's the least likely. There's a couple. There's three groups of kids that I would never use a timeout with, mm-hmm. and the first group of kids are um, kids who have escape motivated behavior. So we talk a lot in the book. Um, Mark Duran is a psychologist that we refer to, and he talks about um, behavior having four, one of four functions. One of which is escape, which means. Um, that the reason behind or the intent of the behavior is to avoid something or escape something. So if a student is escape-motivated and you use a timeout, um, for example, the student um, swears in class, and the teacher will have them go out into into the hallway, or you pass them a math quiz and they rip it up and crumple it up and the teacher removes them and have them sit in the hallway. Both times... They've actually successfully, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, avoided the math quiz, yeah. and they're likely because they successfully, you know, accidentally on the teacher's part, but they successfully avoided the math quiz. They're likely to do that again tomorrow because yeah. mm-hmm. even though it wasn't functional or appropriate, it did get them what they needed, which was to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, so timeouts for kids like that, like I see a lot of times. Um, teachers will send kids to the office or send kids to the principal, and that does the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. If they if they are disruptive because they're uncomfortable um, about something like say math, and you send them to the principal's office, you're which and it doesn't sound because for a lot of kids this um, this is 
this is not how they act, but um, they'll su- have successfully avoided math. And um, what we want, and say that there's an underlying math disability that, you know, over time we see patterns that they're constantly avoiding math, um, and that's where the disruptive behavior is, we can start to see that as escape motivated. So for that, so timeouts in that, with that group of kids is actually unhelpful because um, it might increase the likelihood they they continue the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the other two kids with, um, like, who um, are self-injurious, who would, you know, hurt themselves or pick at their skin or something like that. In a timeout, mm-hmm. we usually don't recommend timeouts because you can't, it's a little less supervision and mm-hmm. might be not a good idea. And then kids who are um, self-stimulatory, so kids who um, <laughs> think in their head, you know, watch a movie in their head or, yeah. um, you know, sing songs in their head, they're so happy in timeout. So you <laughs> you send them to timeout and they're watching, you know, SpongeBob, yeah, the last uh-huh. episode of SpongeBob in their head or thinking about something lovely. Um yeah. That's also a group of kids that it kind of backfires with. So we really talk about in the book, you have to really understand the behavior. Take a little bit of time to understand the behavior before you assign a, a, a strategy afterwards because something like timeout can be mismatched and therefore, yeah. you know, you're not doing what you wanted, and which is reduce the behavior. Right. Yeah, we've talked before about uh, behavior analysis and how useful that can be uh, mm-hmm. before you're – coming up with an intervention, and that's exactly what you catch, or those sorts mm-hmm. of things. Gee, he does this every day at math. <laughs> yeah. You know, wonder if there's something significant about that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's, uh, you know, so often the individual behavior plans the schools create for these explosive students fail. I know it's, it's uh, my son didn't have problems with explosiveness, but he, he also had behavior problems that were not well addressed in the behavior plan and trying to get any intervention on that, any behavior analysis on that. You know, the behavioral therapist was called in February and came in June. Um, you know, it can be very difficult uh, to <laughs> to yeah. uh, remediate that. Uh, what what sort of, you know, and, and but if you have an explosive student, you really can't wait that long if there's, uh, you know, that much disruption going on in the class. You're sort of kicking that kid out of school. What can be done for them? Yes. So, and then the other, the other part is that teachers are pretty exhausted by sure. December or January too mm-hmm. with an explosive <laughs> student. Um, yeah. So everyone's pretty, pretty exacerbated. Um, if I, if Nancy or I are called in by, by December or or February, you know, it's everyone's pretty stressed out, including the kid right. and the parents and the. Yes. Um, so the mother has already written many long notes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, there's been meetings. There's been yes. yeah. So um, and it's tough. You know, Nancy and I would love to be called in earlier, of course. But um, you know, the the two things that are usually missing in behavior plans. So if a student is consistently disruptive for that long of a period of time, um, what it's an opportunity for the school staff to look at the behavior plan again, because mm-hmm. obviously the behavior plan is not working well. The way the teacher is intervening is not overly successful. Mm-hmm. So really, we try to say, oh, great, the student is telling us we we need to look at the behavior plan. And, re, you know, um, and so that's what we really 
and what we have seen that there are really two things that are often missed when there's a behavior plan developed for kids. And the first thing is um, that the concept that a student would behave if they could, and mm-hmm. that um, and Ross Green talks about that if yeah. if they're not behaving, it's because they can't. Mm-hmm. So it's not that he won't won't; it's that he can't. And be, there's a skill deficit there. So, mm-hmm. like we talked about originally, self-regulation. If a student mm-hmm. doesn't have self-regulation skills. They're the kids who blow from, they go from zero to 100, like in a split second, right? They're just mm-hmm. blowing up mm-hmm. because they don't, um, they're not calm enough to catch themselves. And um, what we, what happens a lot when I go into schools is that I don't see how they're addressing the skill deficits. And often they don't, they don't even, aren't even aware of what the skill deficits are. So um, that really needs to be a huge part. If you're not teaching um, how to behave, then and where this this and teaching right to the skill deficits like social skills, perspective taking, flexible thinking. There's explicit ways of teaching all those things, just like you can teach math and reading during the school day. Right. Then um, the behavior will persist. And so that's the first thing we do, and that's what we did in the book is we took a section in each chapter to say these are the typical skill deficits we see with kids who are presenting like this, and they need to be explicitly taught. Um, And then the other thing is prevention. Ninety percent of every behavior plan is preventative and looking at the environment. um, So, for example, for a very oppositional child, um, how you give a direction is, you know, ten to ten times more powerful than um, once they've exploded. The teacher mm-hmm. has so many fewer tools in her toolbox at that moment than right. she does mm-hmm. five minutes before he exploded. <laughs> so we talk a lot about how you would give a direction to a kid who's got um, who's prone to exploding. So if you say, you know, controlled choice is an example. So instead of saying uh, you need to line up to an oppositional kid, right? There, that mm-hmm. could go badly. Um, <laughs> you could say, you can line up. Do you want to line up in the back or do you want to line up in the front? Um, or do you want to go ahead of the class and we'll meet you there? Huh. You don't really care. They, they're getting to PE or whatever, yeah. the, or chorus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, yes. But now they have a lot of choice in it. And just like you know, we have tons of strategies about that that will get the student there. And what I've noticed is schools are shorter on the preventative yes, yes. than, mm-hmm. um, you know, what to do after. And that's the first question I get is, what do I do when he screams? And what I'd rather hear from teachers and from principals is, how do I teach him not to scream? Because mm-hmm. really a behavior plan is just a teaching plan. It's where are the skill deficits um, and where, what can we do to change our behavior so that the student, like giving directions and um, giving them breaks during the day, that kind of thing, that will prevent this from even happening ever. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what we end up doing. It's sort of like, oh, okay, so this, this, you know, there's we're in a really stressful point. The principals, you know, send us three emails, whatever. We get in there, <laughs> and we'll yeah. say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take the opportunity to look at what's going on, and the students telling us this is not working. And, yeah. and that's sort of how we approach it. That's great. 
Um, th- that idea of, of giving the kids a choice, that sounds like something that would work at home with parents, too. Is that is that the strategy that you call positive opposites? Of giving that them is two options, or what is that? Positive opposites is a little different. What we call um, the choices is controlled choice. Okay. And and it's different than choice. It's not like we don't say to students in school, "Do you want to go to chorus or would you like to play on the computer?" Like we're yeah. you know we're we're not really a democracy in schools. Right. But um, we we yeah. you know it's the controlled choice. It's, you know we'll give you some choice here, but um, the end result is you're going to be in chorus um, or yeah. whatever. So. <laughs> We call that controlled choice. Yes, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then positive what is the opposite? positive opposite? Yeah, that is um, Alan Kasdan is a psychologist, and he um, coined that phrase. It, what that means is um, a lot of kids who have chronic uh, inappropriate behavior, you get a lot of, they hear a lot of no's in their life. Mm-hmm. So don't do that, <laughs> um, no hitting, no you know, calling out, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And um, it sort of emphasizes what they're not doing. Mm-hmm. It's not really um, sort of a skill deficit sort of uh, way to talk to right. kids. So the positive opposite is, is just a positive way of saying um, and thinking about the behavior you want to increase as opposed to the behavior you want to decrease. So mm-hmm. instead of saying no hitting, we'd say keep your hands to yourself. Mm-hmm. Keep safe hands, yeah. um, and so that the messages they're hearing are the ones you want them to remember. You don't want you don't even want them to remember the word hitting. You want them to remember yeah. safe hands throughout the day. And it also helps us helps the adults in our thinking. How do we get him to a point where he has safe hands? And just like we were talking about, oh, what does he need to learn to get there? Um, so just everyone thinking more in the positive um, skill building sort of mm-hmm. mindset is is a little more helpful, and that's what um, positive opposites are. So we're sort of change the vocabulary from yeah. a don't and no and don't and no to the more positive. Um, yeah, I like that. It's it's a little bit challenging because you also have to be really specific. I know in some cases the real general, you know, like be polite. Well kid might not know what that means. You know, it's yeah. like it's easy to say specifically what be polite is. It means don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. <laughs> so I'm trying to think how you would be that specific with the positives. I mean, I guess yeah. you keep your hands with yourself for yourself is a good one. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you would have to really think about how to do that because I think we think in generalities as functional adults, however functional we are, but kids who have challenges sometimes have trouble right. with that. So if you, yeah, if that that is a really good point because you want it to be um, clear enough for the student and mm-hmm. um, um, and measurable too. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so instead of saying yeah. um, be polite, you would say um, you know uh, kind words yeah. to friends. You know mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then when you heard them do that, you could give them a little reward, <laughs> yeah. or like the kind and, words you gave or whatever. Yeah. And and sometimes we do do an exercise where we'll have students say, you know, if you when you first introduce it, you can use some no's and don'ts like that first mm-hmm. time just to make sure they're clear, you know. So, what do I not want to see and what do I do what do I want to see when I when, mm-hmm. what does kind words mean and just make sure they're yeah. clear. Um that's a good point. Yeah. Um I noticed the uh, um 
talking about the about transitions and the countdown approach to transitions, which is something that I always used to use, although I would lengthen it because, <laughs> you know, he couldn't do it in three. Uh, yeah. The counting to three never worked. Counting to ten often worked. But, um, <laughs> and you know what? If it works, that's all I care about. People think yeah. it's funny that I'm counting to ten. You know, at the end yeah. of ten, he does it. So, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But I know for there's some kids for whom that doesn't even work. What would be a better idea than countdowns? Well, it's um, transitions. People clump transitions, all transitions, sort of into one big pile. And Mm -hmm. that there's the little transitions just where you don't even have to move from your desk. You know, clean up and get out your math folder. Right. That kind of transition can even go badly Uh um, for some kids. And then there's the bigger transitions. You know, let's let's, um, leave our classroom and walk to lunch, um, that kind of thing. So... For some reason, everyone kind of does the one transition warning, but Mm -hmm. what we do in the book is we deconstruct transitions, and there's actually four parts to it, every single transition, and each part, if the student's getting stuck on one of the parts, needs a specific transition warning. So, for example, the first thing you have to do... Speaking of transitions... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right now, we have to transition our live listeners out, and then we will go back and we will finish your thought on that. So uh, if live listeners, if you're interested in hearing the four steps in the transition, download the podcast and you can hear the rest. But for now, I just want to, you know, thank you for being our guest today and thank all our listeners for tuning in to our program this morning. You can follow Jessica on Twitter at Jessica underline Minahan. That's M-I-N-A-H-A-N, and it's Facebook under the behavior code. Uh, Join us next Friday at 9 a.m. on the Inclusive Class podcast when we will have Connie Hammer on the program to talk about ways parents can support their autistic child in school. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter where Nicole tweets under the name Inclusive underscore class and I am at Mamatude, that's M-A-M-A-T-U-D-E. You can also find archives to our past shows on my blog at mamatude.blogspot.com. It was all caught up as of today, but now I have to add this one. Uh, Also, our show is now on Stitcher. You can listen to us on your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices with Stitcher. You can find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Okay, that's uh, goodbye to all our live listeners who are going to be dropping out in about 14 seconds and have a great week and now Jessica if you remember where you were when I cut you off so rudely you were talking about uh, four steps to transitions I believe oh okay thank you Um, yeah so the first thing you have to do say um, we'll take the worst kind of transition leaving something preferred and going to something you don't like so get off the computer and start um, reading I don't don't even like doing that Yeah. so (laughs) the terrible transition for good So um, the first thing you have to do is you have to stop what you're doing. And the the thing with kids who are inflexible, it's almost the same as if if you were watching a movie and it was a romantic comedy and you'd been watching it for an hour. And finally the couple is about to get together and, you know, (laughs) kiss and you're like, great. Uh And someone says, five, four, three, two, one, and shuts it off. Right? You have to stop. You need a lot of flexibility to stop on a dime like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, you're mid-flow into the activity. You know, when kids are on, that's where you see kids going, but wait, but wait, I get to the, and they can't. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's because it takes a lot of flexibility to just stop. So what we recommend instead of the countdown, if a child you see is having trouble stopping, is that um, you say, 
find a stopping place. And so that might give, give the kid a few seconds on either end, so it might not be exactly like the whole class is doing, but it will prevent a, a blow-up. So, um, for example, if they're reading, uh, find a sort of a natural close where they're reading, like the end of a dialogue. Of course, the end of a chapter would be great. Put a little stick-em note and say, stop here. And so that's a little, it's a little easier for them to stop, given that they don't have a lot of flexibility. Um, so, that, so that. And then the second part of a transition is what we do is we make a cognitive shift in our minds. So you stop thinking about the computer and you start thinking about reading. And a lot of kids, that takes a lot of executive functioning. It's it's planning. And a lot of our kids um, don't do that very well. So we have a lot of strategies for that, like schedules. And sometimes um, Sarah Ward uh, is an executive functioning person. She says that you could take a photo of what it looks like to be in to be reading. And while you're finishing computer, it's like, oh, now next you're going to be doing this and kind of show them the photo so they can start to plan. Um, And the third part is the starting of the next activity, and that's where the countdown is perfect. It tells you Mm -hmm. when you're starting the next thing, you know, where the, when the, um, and so five, four, three, two, one, okay, time to line up. That tells you exactly when you're lining up. It's, that's fine. Um, I would add to that some more specifics. Uh, Five, four, three, you know, in five minutes, we're going to be lining up. You're, pencils are away, your chairs are pushed in, mm-hmm. and you're standing mm-hmm. with both hands by your sides. I would just add some more details um, mm-hmm. for some of my kids. And then the fourth part of a transition is that downtime that happens in a transition. So um, when you say, okay, to a, cl- to a class, let's clean up and line up for lunch, it can be up to four and a half to six minutes before mm-hmm. they're actually going to lunch. Those and are that dangerous is- minutes. It is a yes, it's a disaster. I just hold my breath when I'm doing observations because, um, you know, you're standing kind of close to the person in front of you, yeah. close to the person behind you, but there's no structure, there's no specific directions. Uh, yeah. um, does not go well. So what we so what we would recommend for that part, and that's the part where a lot of my kids, when pe- when teachers say, oh, they're having trouble with transitions, that is a an issue, the downtime. Mm-hmm. They'll say, um, I'd rather them do what we call sponges, which are mm-hmm. all these activities that will absorb that downtime. Right. Like, um, can you push in all the chairs? and <laughs> Or can you erase the whiteboard? And then uh-huh. the class is lining up. The class, And as the class is leaving, then, okay, you're done, get in line. That, yes. that works much better. Um, so those are sort of the tricks we use for transitions. Because the 54321 is good, but only for that one part of mm-hmm. a transition. So it depends on where the student is, is having trouble. Wow. That's a really well, good point. Jessica, I think every teacher in <laughs> schools across <laughs> America need that book in their classroom. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, that's so speaking nice. from experience, um, everything that you've mentioned, and that, you know, it took me 20 years to learn and uh, <laughs> how to, <laughs> you know, how to get to a point that, um, you know, you sort of have an understanding of these children and how to work with them. And, and you've, you know, your book clearly outlines it right off the start. So thank you so much. That's just it's wonderful information. Anyway, sorry, I had to interject there. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think we're uh, – uh, um, can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find your book? And also are there any other resources you'd like to suggest? 
Sure. Um, yes, thank you. My um, The behavior code you can find on Amazon.com and also um, on the Harvard Education Press website um, are the two main ways to find it. Um, it also is through our um, my website, jessicaminahan.com, is another place to find it. Um, other resources, I would say uh, I use a lot of resources to help kids learn those skill skill deficits. Um, Executive Functioning Skills in Children and Adolescents by um, Peg Dawson and Richard um, Gare. That's a good one because executive functioning is um, – an issue with any kid we're talking about. And then Michelle Garcia Winner has a series of curriculums to explicitly teach every little nuance of social skills. Um, she does the social thinking curriculum, and, and we use that a lot to help kids who are struggling um, and and unfortunately showing behavior because of it. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I like those too, yeah. And I'll make sure I'll put those up on the website too, our yeah. Great. inclusive class and let our listeners know where to find that information as well. So thank you. Definitely. Appreciate thank it. you so much for being Thanks here for and it. for staying after school with us a little bit here to finish <laughs> up. It's very interesting. I'm I'm having some transmission issues now, so I wanted to hear that information. <laughs> so uh, it's very yeah. good to know. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you so much. Okay. So nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Thank you, Take everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. See you next week. Bye. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.